Blog Talk Radio. Tonight's episode of Alan Moore Month, if you couldn't tell by the intro song there, Jack the Ripper, and you'll be hearing a lot of him being mentioned tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jesse Starcher, and I want to welcome you all to the final entry to Alan Moore Month. Uh, This is by far the biggest undertaking that I have ever had in a comic, uh, in a graphic novel, uh, in an artist, or excuse me, in, a, in, a, in an author of themselves. We are going to be discussing From Hell. Uh, Alan Moore's From Hell. And if you've never heard of it, don't worry. I had not heard of it as, up until recently when I first grabbed the, uh, when I first grabbed the graphic novel. Believe it or not, I had no idea it had an affiliated ad- adaptation uh, starring Johnny Depp. And that's all right. That's okay. That's what we're here to do on the Rattlegion Broadcasting Network. We're here to learn. And tonight we hope to learn you one, as we say here in Ohio and West Virginia. We're going to learn you one. So let me go ahead and bring on our guests. Uh, first off, I'm going to talk about the guys that I know are actually here right now. Uh, I'm here. Hey, all right. Let's our co-host then. Let's go ahead and go to the co-host. Our co-host this evening, uh, he is the patriarch. He is the one that makes it all happen for us here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. His name is Mark Radlich. Sir, how do you do? So, did you like the punk rock mix I made here? Uh, I haven't listened, sir. I have not listened, That's, sir. My wife is very jealous that I make you mixes and I'm not making her mixes anymore. That's partially Uh-oh. because, you know, I, I don't I don't need to impress her anymore, but I still need to impress you because you're dreamy. Um, but it's also because <laughs> I, you know, you're actually interested in music, and I can like, turn you on to things, and you know, not not quite the same. In any case, I'm good. How are you? 
I, I, I'm excited to listen. By the way, folks, he's referencing last night's Metal Hammer of Doom, where we decided to cover an album, but by the second song, Mark Radelich was absolutely obsessed with making a Spotify punk playlist for me to listen to. So if you want to check <laughs> that out, you can listen to last so night's show. You play punk rock music, and I wouldn't let that stand. You no, know, you would not. No, no I, I will not let that go. That's right. I, I feel like you're not like punk rock music, so, I'm, so, I, so I went to learn you one. He went to learn me one. Ah, Mark Radlich, glad you're here. Glad you made it. I, I I can't believe we've made it through four consecutive weeks talking Alan Moore. And I cannot Can I, wait. To, please. I, let me just really, in all seriousness, say um, that this, I, I pulled this completely out of my ass. It was an idea that I had, um, as I said, inspired by the fact that someone had sent me some comics. And one of them was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And nobody had to join me in this endeavor. People could have said, no, <laughs> we have better things to do than talk about old Grim, old Grimsy, Alan Moore. But um, <laughs> you, you guys really jumped at it, had a lot of enthusiasm, um, and made, made this project come to life as much as it can. And I am very appreciative. And I, and I know you're going to bring up, you're going to announce them in just a second, but I want to take the time to first thank you guys for uh, helming this thing um, and, and reading all those comics. Um, I want to thank Robert Humphrey um, being on these shows. I want to thank Ronnie and I want to thank Benjamin. Um, and I want to thank your, your buddy. It was Josh who was on the first show, the Watchmen. Uh, that was Cole, I believe. Cole, I think Cole joined us on, on Watchmen. Okay. Um, There's everybody who, who was a part of this and uh, made it come to life. I appreciate you. I thank you. Um, it's been fun. The material wasn't, but the conversations, <laughs> the conversations were a blast, and it inspires me to try to do something else in the near future, uh, similar to this. I'll, fi- I'll figure something out, but it's good to know that I have some 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 guys I can trust that come on here and make these conversations fun and interesting. So, so thank you all. Oh yeah, absolutely. We got your back here, man. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Let's go ahead and introduce our guests here. I. I, I I, I cannot go forward in the uh, in the realm of podcasts without my good buddy Ronnie Adams. Now, Ronnie Adams, how you doing tonight, man? Are you are you, you still got smiles here? We're in our fourth week of Alan Moore. What do you think, man? I um, yeah. Think about it now. Yeah, I tend to block things out. Make me sad. Well, um, before we get sent out tonight at the end of this very episode, I want to get everybody's thoughts on if, uh, if what they thought or if they thought this affected them in any way or if they came away with this, uh, with, you know, some type of a revelatory vision after reading Alan Moore for four straight weeks. Or at least talking about Alan Moore for four straight weeks. So, Ronnie, thanks for joining us. Now, let's go ahead and move next to one of the – he is the host of the 411 Ground of Town. He is also the host of uh, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy at some point here. I can't wait till it comes back. His name is Robert Winfrey. And how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm pretty good. I uh, surprised myself I was able to finish the book before we the show actually started today, and that was 
Also, I had to squeeze in also, another viewing of the movie, which I can't say I was overly thrilled about doing, but <laughs> I did it. I finished the book. I am I'm ready to go. This there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here, both in in both properties independently and as they relate to each other. So uh, this ought to be a fun one. And Benjamin is in the switchboard area, so if you want to bring him on. Absolutely. What were you going to say, Mark? Before you do the small correction, Robert is also the co-host of our newly reminted podcast, Damn You Hollywood. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Damn You Hollywood. And I think we might be saying that this evening, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) Uh, All right. Benjamin J. Cologne. He he joined us last week to talk one of his favorite Alan Moore books, and that was V for Vendetta. And then we drug him, along with Robert Winfrey, right into From Hell. And not drag me to hell, but this is we drug him from into From Hell. <laughs> and I wanna I wanna go ahead and tell him thanks right up front. Benjamin J. Cologne, how you doing tonight, man? Good evening. I'm doing good. <laughs> Uh, I just mentioned earlier I beat Robert's, uh, you know, uh, I beat Robert's time as far as like how how soon before the podcast began that I finished the book and the movie, which I was both reading and watching at the same time up until about ten minutes ago. Wow. Well, you guys put in some work. I will tell you that right now. I didn't. I was watching full frontal clips with Samantha Day on YouTube. Full yeah. Okay. Well, I, I I won't delve into that anymore. We've got a big book to talk about. Uh, Alan Moore's From Hell. Now, when we get in, and when we when I first, like I said, picked up this book, I didn't realize how massive it was. Uh, we're talking close to on the order of six hundred pages. So. No one can fault anyone here if they did not read this material. I picked it up in July, I think, and I had to renew it on my library card twice. You get a book out a month for a month at a time. I had to renew it twice, and I probably owe like at least two bucks in fines on it because I'm lazy. Um, but regardless – I, I, I picked it up, and I was like, man, this is going to take me a while to get through, so I, I started immediately. Um, and for myself, I think it took me I'm, – I'm a, I'm a leisurely reader. I can't really jump into something and stay focused, especially before the hour of 9 o'clock, which is my kid's bedtime. Um, that, that's just not going to happen. So what I would usually do is I'd wait till the evening, crack it open, and go through about maybe two chapters. It's only 16 chapters, I think, which is a prologue, epilogue, and 14 in between. So I thought a chapter a night, I can have this knocked out in two weeks. Hey, look at me. I'm planning things. Again, like I said, it took me two months. So, <laughs> um, it, 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 was, uh, it was quite a task. But that's not to say that this book was overly unenjoyable. Uh, Alan Moore, the, the subject matter of this book, Alan Moore uh, took a, 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 very, uh, a, a, a very focused look on a crime that occurred back in the later, uh, later 19th century, in the late 1800s. This is 
um, Jack the Ripper. Okay. Uh, From Hell is, I would say, his theory on. Well, I wouldn't say his theory, but I mean his 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 idea of the put together facts on what exactly happened. So let me go ahead and I'll quickly read my synopsis, uh, provided I can find it here as to as to what we as to what we're about to embark on, and then we'll get into discussion about the book and all and all that great stuff. Um, all right. From hell may look a little daunting at first. Within these pages lurks the proposed theory for the famed Jack the Ripper killings that took place in the late 1800s. In, the, in this piece, we are treated to the story about one royal physician, Sir William Gall, who has been tasked with the duty of eliminating some prostitutes who know a dirty secret about a certain prince and an illegitimate heir to the throne. Gall happily takes on this task, but not to just adjust, excuse me, not to just satisfy the queen, but to satisfy his own Masonic fed psychosis as well. Believing the murder of these women will solidify man's reign over women for, for time to come, Gull attempts to ritualistic kill these women of the night, each time glimpsing his transcendence into godhood. The story is not just about the killings, though. From Hell also lets us peek into the life of Inspector Frederick Aberline, Aberline, excuse me, trying to track down and put together these clues as to who the Ripper is and what are his motivations. Um, all right, so there's my brief summary. Any, any corrections there? Because trust me, I put that together at about 11.30 last night. It's one small uh, one. Um, it's not a theory. It's not a theory. Um, you got the theory. He, he, it's not it's his theory. theory. He got it's the theory from theory. elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. And he and uh, the, the and the theory that he's and the theory ahead, that he's pulling from he actually kind of just played around with and um, more so fictionalized. Um, he added he added elements to it that were not part of the original theory to make it more dramatic. Okay, Winfrey. Uh, for those of you who wish to keep track, the theory that he is basing his fiction off of is the book, uh, primarily it's called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which proposes the Masonic royal uh, cover-up to the whole Ripper, uh, as the solution to the whole Ripper problem. Because, you know, no one knows who Jack the Ripper really was, and people can still sell books off of it, as actually somewhat predicted by Moore in this book. Yeah. Um... So let's talk about – first off, we'll talk about the – okay, the absolute uh, girth of this particular piece. I want to ask Ronnie here first. I mean, dude, this is a graphic novel that is just uh, unreal in size. Is this probably, is this the largest graphic novel you've ever read, or is there anything else that you have had in your library or at any time uh, in the past grabbed the hold of and read that even uh, – Tops this? Uh, off the top of my head, no. I mean, I thought uh, Watchmen and a few others were like the top, you know, like the biggest books I've ever read. Um, and I got a hold of this. Uh, I like uh, Robert Worth. I was mainly digital mm-hmm. on on reading this, and it was it was a task. It was really a task to get through this um, on an iPad. <laughs> Uh, but it was, uh, man, it's intimidating. I'm not going to lie. It, 
it's a pretty it's a pretty it can be a rough read, but it's still a good read. But it's mm-hmm. kind of rough at first. Well, the good thing is there's pictures. That's about the only thing I could say. Because man, if this was all nothing but words, <laughs> as, as we've already discovered on here, I don't read books, right, Mark Radlitz? Man, no, he ain't one for no book learning. <laughs> Mark, what did you think here, man? I mean, did you actually get a chance to look at this thing I mean, at all? I mean, like, did you see the 500 and some pages that are in this thing? I mean, I. I don't know if I understand your question. I own the book, and it's you like actually, textbook. You, you do? I, I you thought do? maybe you'd like hit the library or something. So this is something that you bought. No, I'm good at wasting money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just ask my wife. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I, uh, I once I got the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I went on Amazon and I just I bought these. When we decided what we were doing. Um, I just went out and bought the three bo- three other books. I bought Watchmen, which I did not own. I bought From Hell, and I bought Glee, and I bought uh, V for Vendetta. And I took a look at that, and I didn't know what I was getting into with From Hell. And in, and in somewhat in retrospect, when I initially pitched this idea, it's just a quick side note. When I originally pitched this, I was thinking about um, at that, that time the Killing Joke hadn't come out yet, but when but now it has, and at the time. There was all these other ideas of doing something with Gavin's podcast, which seems to have gone the way of all flesh. Um, but he was talking about doing something with the killing joke. So I was like, okay, well, then we need another idea here for a movie. And, it, and I just did some preliminary research and said, oh, look, you know, From Hell is a graphic novel. And so I really knew nothing about it, mm-hmm. what I'm getting at here. I knew zero about the story, knew zero about the book. I, I did a quick Wikipedia search for Alan Moore stuff and went, well, I can't really some, I can't really narrow swamp thing down to anything that would be good for a podcast. And Gallon <laughs> and Gavin threatened violence on me if we did the killing joke. Um, in retrospect, I wish we had because I have a lot to say about that stupid movie that came out this past Ooh, summer. Uh, some of it was already covered by myself and Robert on Damn You Hollywood, our summer wrap-up series. Um, you can go ahead and listen to that, and I'm sure I'll have more to say about it at the end of the year. But boy, could we, we could have had a podcast tonight. Robert Winfrey, you are one of the most, um, let's say, I, I, I mean, when I think of you, man, I could just see like a, a sea of books surrounding you in your office. You got your pipe lit, and you got your microphone, and you're doing your podcast. Uh, tell me, sir. I mean, did you feel like this book was a, a, a gigantic undertaking, or did you think that this was something that uh, this is just, this is just fodder for some of the stuff you've read in the past? Uh, well, being LDS, I don't smoke, but I appreciate the visual. <laughs> as far as an undertaking, I, didn't say the I mean, was lit. had I had a physical copy, I might have considered it. Because this was digital, it was just like page, turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. I, I, there's no reference for how far I am into it, how farther I am from the beginning or close to the end. And uh, Also, no, this is not the largest book I've ever read, I don't think. It's not, the mo- uh, it's not the most dense. It is certainly up there, mind you, but it is not... Uh, it, 
I mean, look, as far as dense reading goes, I've never read anything denser than uh, Heart of Darkness, which, despite being an extraordinarily thin volume in terms of page count, took me something like a month to read because I just – you can't plow through that. Mm-hmm. Conversely, I can read the totality of the Harry Potter series probably within nine days. I read so Disney one, War in 24 hours. It's like a 600-page book. Yeah, wow. I mean, there's light reading. This is uh, this isn't light reading, but uh, not the densest. But I'm very glad to have read it. Uh, I might wind up rereading it at some point in the future. It's there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And we're gonna now, we're this, definitely gonna go ahead. I was gonna say this is the the largest book I've read, but it's the largest graphic novel I've read. Okay. But, um. All right, Benjamin J. Cologne, I, I, I want to ask you first. I know that this – you've had this for a while, correct? Yeah, I've and, actually I've actually tried on uh, three other separate occasions to finish it, and I hadn't. I, I, that's amazing. Now you've, you've actually had the opportunity, and you've done it. Do you feel like you've accomplished something? Yeah, well, also not only in, in finishing it, but in finishing it before the show started. <laughs> well, uh, so uh, folks out there, last 15 minutes, if you can't figure out what we're trying to say, this thing is huge, all right? Um, the it's only, huge. It's, it's huge. It's big. Um, now, my next question when we look at the art style of this particular book, let's go ahead and give our artist uh, some props here. His name is, uh, help me out, Eddie Campbell? Yes. Eddie Campbell. What do you think of this art style, Ben? Uh, well, you you asked during Daredevil Man Without Fear if you'd ever seen more lines than a comic in your life. Well, asking <laughs> you shall receive, sir. <laughs> That's the truth. Uh, can you do your best to describe what what this looks like so that our uh, listeners have an idea that this isn't just some you know again this is not some flashy uh, flashy '90s comic book art in any way shape or form. No, the the art style uh, I can see where it might be off putting to some people. I suppose Eddie Campbell's art can get extremely impressionistic at points uh, to the point maybe of incoherence. Uh, I happen to think that's more a function of the storytelling than anything else, and more often than not, uh, an extremely effective one. Um, you'll notice uh, Eddie Campbell's art tends to get murkiest and least solid and most impressionistic during moments of violence or impaired points of view or just uh, general fits of anger or madness. Um, but you'll also notice that, you know, for example, during um, the scene during uh, William Gull's, you know, admittedly kind of plotting secret Masonic architectural history tour of London. Hmm. Um, all the historical landmarks are pretty solid, and, and Campbell is actually kind of revealed to be an outstanding uh, draftsman. Uh, Alan Moore describes the geography of Whitechapel in, in great detail. Uh, I think because he wanted the location to be, in a way, its own character in the story. Mm-hmm. And, a lesser, and a lesser artist would not be up to that task. What was that? Echo. Go ahead and continue. 
Uh, yeah, lesser artists wouldn't be up to that. You know, character-wise, I'll say this. Uh, I don't know what it says about, you know, the, the movie adaptation, but I found it easier to tell the characters apart through the art in the book than the acting in the movie. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, Alan Moore also tends, like as we've seen in Watchmen and in V for Vendetta, to do a lot of storytelling without dialogue through the artists. And again, I speak and, and you know I speak from experience. That's harder than it looks. And again, Eddie Campbell does a really expert job at it. Yeah, and there were times in this book where I was, I, I see exactly what you're talking about, where you know. Gull goes on one of his uh, murderous sprees and things just take this crazy turn in the art style and it looks all rough and you know kind of scary one of the reviews that I read uh, was talking about how you know it's just strictly black and white I assume he's just using a pen I mean is he using anything else in this that you can think of there there's, Benjamin there's, there's a lot of brushwork in here Okay. A lot of All like right. Paint, like paint brushwork, but there's also like a lot of very thin, like you know, uh, like technical, you know, uh, you know, thin point uh, artwork type of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And they said that it was appropriate for the setting of the book, uh, which was you know the late, the you know in in England at that point in time. Uh, one of the things that they were thinking of was the amount of soot and how kind of dingy and dirty things were, especially for Whitechapel. Uh, so let me let me go ahead and bring in Ronnie here real quick. Ronnie, what do you think about Whitechapel, man? Is this a place you would uh, want to go visit there back in back in that day? No. <laughs> Please explain. Uh, it's like this. Uh, I look at it and I see... <laughs> I see Bourbon Street without the charm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I, you know, it, it's it just it just it's it's dingy, it's dirty, it's it's you know um, dark. So it's not something that uh, you know the art in the book or you know how it's portrayed is not uh, it's not conducive to me going to visit anytime soon. <laughs> and it's. It's very crime-ridden. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's like well, yeah, it's, it's, New Orleans, it's New Orleans with it's uh, Bourbon Street without the charm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I, that's that's an apt description. Um, the setting of Whitechapel, Robert Winfrey. Do you have anything you'd like to add about Whitechapel? No, not really. Uh, it's you know, 1888 London was a very divisive place. Uh, between the haves and the have-nots, and Whitechapel was kind of a place of have-nots. It was a very transient population. It was a very... A lot of people using aliases, like a lot of crime. It's... Uh, I mean, Bourbon Street without the charm just to me means the city of Detroit, and that's kind of what this thing reminds me of in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Damn. <laughs> How about you, Mark? What do you think of Whitechapel, man? I mean... I'm up for hookers roaming the street. I'm I'm fine with it. (laughs) Take me to to Whitechapel, no problem. Oh, man. Hookers, drunken debauchery, and guys with cockney accent. Me and my wife would love it. For different reasons. For different reasons. (laughs) For 
different reasons. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and I guess talk a little bit about the characters here. You know, there's this is a, a story that's well rooted in in history. Uh, again, how many pages? Benjamin, in the back of that book, are dedicated to Moore's research on trying to get everything correct here. Um, I'm not entirely sure what uh, you know the page count, but I, you know, it's easily like a you know a sizable chunk of the book. Like if the book is you know if the book is two inches thick, the the appendix is easily about half an inch of it. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing, and it's cool that he did that um, because. There were times in this particular book where I was uh, – some stuff just happened out of nowhere, and I had no idea what was going on. Help uh, me out. Yes. Yeah, there were, there, there were times – there was specifically a time where he uh, – Sir William Gall, who is the proposed uh, Jack the Ripper here, where he – I can't remember which kill it is. It's like the, the second to last one where he's chasing the girl down and he looks in a window and this is, he sees a, somebody sitting there watching TV. I love that part. I was like, what the hell is going on here? It took me completely by surprise and immediate. Go ahead. I love that part just because I love the look that that they show on, on Gull's face when he, you know, when he looks through the window. Yeah. he, He has, you know, both of them are looking at, I think he's, the guy that's in the, inside is also seeing supposedly this is something that had happened where uh, it was like a ghost sighting or something. At least that's what the the reference I I thought was saying. Yeah, it, it's more described in the appendix of, as as a story that he had heard where um, you know in in more modern times that same location uh, people that were living there actually saw uh, a man chasing a woman down that same alley uh, when there was apparently nobody actually there. So more kind of interprets that as sort of like, you know, this transcendent moment in time where, you know, like both of these time periods meet. There's a lot, there's actually a lot of that in this book because um, that's kind of his whole thesis of the, of what the story is about. Very, inter- yeah, very interesting stuff at, He's he's committing these killings in order to pretty much become a god. Um, one of the one of the things I read was where Sir William Gall had had a uh, a stroke, and they posited that at this point in time is where he met with one of the Freemason deities. Am, am I correct there? Is that what that is? Um, where he had. Which I didn't know Freemasonry was a religion. Am I off on this? Somebody step in. Let me know. Freemasonry isn't necessarily a religion in the traditional sense of the word. Okay. Uh, the incident in question is, in fact, uh, the character suffers, uh, the character uh, refers to it as heat stroke. In actuality, it was a stroke that uh, afflicted this gentleman. But in the book, yeah, he has delusions, or does he, uh, where he sees one of the. Uh, deities that are discussed within masonry again masonry is not a religion as such it's uh, masonry is weird <laughs> it's just weird <laughs> so getting can a I handle take... on it can be different can be difficult but he is just it's more a, a foundation of learning and 
the being that he theoretically meets is one that they discuss and talk about uh, within masonry much more so than with than in any other major religion. Mm-hmm. Can I can I throw this in here while we're talking about the you know this particular thing? And I want to address this to Robert, just one Hannibal Lecter fan to another. Um, and we can come back to this later on because it'll probably come up again later on. Um, did you notice more than a few, and I'm not even just talking the obvious ones where William Blake is actually a character in this book, but did you notice the obvious, like, you know, some of the Red Dragon, uh, parallels that may have, you know, that may have come up? Yeah, there's a few, uh. Again, you mentioned Blake being a character, the obsession with Blake's work, uh, turning into a... uh, This happens at the end. He actually believes he is the inspiration for a painting that Blake did. Uh, Again, no small reference there, as Francis Dollarhide was attempting to physically transform himself into the Great Red Dragon from the painting of the same name, also done by Blake. But yeah, there's a... Good. And... Probably most unfortunately, which kind of sucks because there's actually a pretty a few pretty interesting like Blake you know references in the book, but the baffling uh, decision of the makers of the movie to turn uh, Fred Aberline into like you know lame ass Victorian Will Graham. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. I really okay. do. And. Well, oh, put a pin I hadn't in that thought one, of it in that. <laughs> yeah, put a pin in that one. In sure we'll terms, and now I can't stop seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come well, back to that. All right, very good. We'll, we'll definitely touch on that. So we got this great conspiracy that's going on to try and, and stop uh, this. You know, if there's a, a child uh, out that could potentially have an heir to the throne from, which I believe was a... A prostitute at the time. Um, uh, no, that actually is what causes the problems. It's not that she's a prostitute because illegitimate children are just illegitimate. Uh, the character in this case, one of the princes of England, actually marries this girl in a Catholic ceremony. And England, of course, is very Church of England, you know, their own religion. And he actually marries her and has a legitimate child. That ah, would have legitimate claim to the throne, and the queen is just not having that. No, she she is the one that says no, that's not going to happen. And, and in this book, one of the particular plot points that's kind of different from the movie uh, is it, these ladies of the night find out, you know, what exactly happened, and their plan is to kind of blackmail. Uh, a certain person to try and get more money. Of course, when the queen found out about that, she's like, no. All right. And she tasks Sir William Gall with trying to eliminate that whole problem Uh, to which he takes it to lengths that are, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just a little over the top, but of course uh, a, uh, you know, a case could be made that this guy was definitely not right in his head. Uh, So let's, Let's go ahead and talk real quick about any characters that you want to. Robert Winfrey, I mean, is there – do you want to take the main character or our, our certain centerpiece here, which I think is Sir William Gall? Do you have anything you'd like to say about uh, uh, his – anything that struck you in the book? Um, what would you like to say about him? 
Well, Gull's fanaticism and his lunacy are very entertaining and interesting to me as a reader. Uh, you know, listening to him expound on his personal theories, viewing whole sequences from his you know, legitimate first-person perspective, uh, the discussion about time as the fourth dimension and potentially being able to move through it, uh, which is addressed in a much more coherent and accessible fashion in uh, Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar. Mm. But it's still a it's still a theory or you know a belief not a belief system but you know, again a theory that I find very interesting because again time is in fact a dimension we simply can't traverse it other than li- in a linear fashion. And him his insanity is very it's simultaneously interesting and frightening. His relationship with uh, his coachman, Netley, uh, produces quite a few enjoyable moments uh, you know, that caused me to chuckle. <laughs> and he's, yep. it's a suitable interpretation of Jack the Ripper based on the evidence that they chose to go with for this book. Netley seems more like the... The, the the person that I almost identify with, although he's he's not really doing a whole lot of horrible things other than just carting this murderer around uh, because he's been told to. But he is absolutely, even though he's not very smart, he is almost the one person that, you know, if I was riding alongside this guy and he was describing all this stuff, I would also be overcome with exactly what he's talking about uh, and, and potentially fall down to the ground and be like, okay, I'm done. Uh, there's a point in this book where Netley just can't handle it. And he, I think he gets off when they're doing, after doing the tour of London and he's pointing out all these great architects and he starts to realize or all the great, uh, all these great structures that were built by these, these ar- architects and what the actual purpose of it was for, which was apparently uh, some, again, he's kind of letting him in on this whole subjugation of women and how women at one time had power, and now all these things are, have been built around London to make sure that that's not the case, that that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, all of a sudden, he's just, you know, Netley's overcome with the fact that uh, the realization of what he's been traveling around this whole time uh, and not even realizing what was going on to where it almost, I think it makes him physically ill. Um, Ronnie, it doesn't help that he's, uh, you know, dumber than a bag of rocks and is, easy, <laughs> and is uh, quite susceptible to the suggestions that Gull is giving him. That's true. That's true. Um, Ronnie, do you have a, do you have any insight on any character insight? You got a favorite character or anything you'd like to discuss about these, the characters in this book? Uh, the most interesting character to me, you've already touched on. And, uh, that was the, uh, the, the coachman who was kind of his, um, evil Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to a point, you know, he's, but uh, but that was the one that stood out to me the most, um, mainly because you know he is sort of an idiot, uh, mm-hmm. and he's very susceptible, like you said, to to everything he was telling, um, and at no point in time did he ever think I could just tell this guy no, or run for my life, or 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 whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't mention a lot of these characters that are in here. I, I could probably run down them. We've already talked about Sir William Gull, uh, potentially Jack the Ripper, uh, 
Netley, uh, the, the coachman. We have Inspector Frederick, Frederick Aberlein. Um, and then we have Mary Kelly, who is the, the, last, uh, the last prostitute standing, I guess is what we would say. Although... Oh, uh, man. <laughs> Isn't that a show on Fox? <laughs> Benjamin, you got, you got any character insight here? Uh, any favorite moments of these characters in the book? Uh, you know, uh, we spend most of our time, uh, in the book anyway, uh, you know, dealing with things from William Gull's point of view and Alan Moore tries to keep it entertaining. Um, and if you're going to keep it entertaining, you might as well like, you know, tell the story primarily from the point of view of this person who is clearly losing his mind, doesn't know it and is doing these horrible things. Uh, and, you know, having these, these visions, uh, that make sense to nobody except himself. Um, you know, Netleek as his accomplice, I, I, I wouldn't call him a complete idiot. Um, he's, uh, you know, we find out later on, he, you know, he can at least kind of sort of write, read and write, uh, which I can't imagine was, you know, was... 100% common among, you know, people around, you know, around that part of London at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, Alan Moore, you know, Alan Moore's theory is that, you know, in a sea of fake, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper letters, the, the, the from hell letter was the only one that maybe he didn't, you know, he kind of says in the appendix, it may have been the only authentic one. And he kind of, you know, uh, he puts forth the theory that he just had, that he had Netley write it as dictated by William Gull. Um, you know, Netley, you know, he's, he's not a complete idiot, but you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's Gull's hired goon, you know, he's, uh, he's got, you know, he kind of just does what he's told. He, he thinks that he's got a future in the Masons, um, uh, waiting for him if he kind of just keeps his mouth shut and does what he's told as distasteful as that may be but uh he's kind of doing that just because he figures you know he's you know it'll be a better life and you know he can advance himself um the ripper's victims uh honestly uh more kind of uh more definitely does a damn sight a better job, uh, you know, fleshing them out as characters in the book than in the movie. Um, yeah. I think they tended, they, they got, they got picked off like flies in the movie without, you know, even much of a chance to, you know, figure out which one was which. Um, Look, the average flock of teenagers that gets mowed down by Jason have more personality than was given to the <laughs> women in, from, yeah. in the movie. That's true. Indeed. Um, and we, you know, we get to know him, uh, we get to know him just enough. And, and this is, you know, I'll probably be going back to this a lot from hell is first and foremost, very much a horror story. Um, and the, the key with, you know, as far as I'm concerned with, with horror and, and I guess I I subscribe to like Stephen King's, uh, philosophy of this is, uh, you have to make, if you establish characters and if you have, you know, you give your audience a reason to care about them, then it becomes that much more horrific when they're in danger. Um, Alan Moore did a great job of that. 
Um, he set up the stakes of, you know, why they were being pursued by the Ripper and why, you know, it was kind of hopeless for them. They really had nowhere to turn, and that's what made it, you know, easy for, you know, for an educated guy with a lot of resources like William Gull to just kind of pick them off one by one in increasingly more brutal ways, which I'm sure we'll also get into shortly. Oh, man. It gets it, it gets rough, and it continues to escalate. Um, and I, I don't know if that's because, you know, in his mind, he's got to do something more to try and just, you know, I don't want to call it a high, but it's it's almost something similar where he's just got to he's got to take it another step farther, and the, the murders have got to get just that just that more grisly, so he could glimpse or you know again try to transcend into godhood. Um, well, the technical term from a uh, behavioral standpoint is uh, devolving. He just, you know, like you said, he's chasing a feeling, trying to find something that he, you kind of get the first time, and it's just never as good. So you attempt to compensate with you know, more elaborate staging, more brutal murders, higher number of murders, having them closer together. Uh, it, it's a very common thing with most serial killers. Not all, but most. They do devolve in that sense, and just things get more and more frantic. And that's usually when they start getting caught is when they become sloppier and just more and more wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Radlich, now you, sir, I mean, you're around some shady people every day. I, I know that's a fact. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you? I can tell you some stories. I know you can. Um, can you give us an idea, though, as to why the public is, would be, is continually fascinated by uh, the the Ripper killings, you have any idea? Can you subject? Uh, can you give us an a, a, an idea or a theory here? Well, I mean, it's not just the Ripper killings. I mean, go and walk into your average books a million or um, uh, Barnes and Nobles. Borders is now gone, but you know, walk into your mall bookstore and there's an entire area dedicated to true crime, and in that true crime section, there's all, there's at least a shelf, if not more, dedicated to just serial killers. Look at how many TV shows we have that are, I mean, and not just TV shows, you know, for, for men. I mean, my, like, Oxygen is a channel for women, and that show's full of fucking uh, oh. shows. Snapped, and, you know, all these shows where, where women go nuts and start murdering people. Um, I don't, we're not just fascinated, fascinated. We're not just fascinated with serial killers. We're fascinated with murder. Um, a highly rated show that just ended uh, drug back up the John Benet Ramsey murder. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as a, I think we're a voyeuristic public. We're we're an extremely isolationist, xenophobic country. Um, we have pockets of progressivism. We have pockets of uh, inclusion. But for the most part, the, the spine of this country is get the fuck away from me and <laughs> get off my lawn. Uh, as, as a, uh, you know, as a Prolong as, as a as a way of defining ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the Atlantic Ocean couldn't couldn't be any, you know the Atlantic Ocean you know just couldn't be any bigger. It, you know it put more oceans between us and the rest of the world. Um, but by the same token, because we're so isolationist and xenophobic, we like to look safely at at these other facets of life that we don't want anywhere near us, but are pretty cool to look at. 
And one of those things is, you know, is the dangerous murderer. Um, we just as a culture really, really enjoy our violence. And that's one aspect of it. Anyone else? I mean, I'm willing to debate that if someone sees it any other way. Because I threw, I threw a lot out there. Maybe you don't see it as I do. But that has sort of been my interpretation of the United States. I don't think you're wrong there. The one thing I would add as to why we're obsessed with the Ripper killings is because he got away with it, fundamentally. Yep. I mean, the the most the ones that we tend to latch on to from a societal standpoint are the ones that go unsolved. I mean, there was a huge, you know, there was a lot of time and energy and thought and uh, material devoted to the BTK killer until he was caught. Uh, the same way that now, you know, it, Jack the Ripper is one everyone knows. The other kind of big serial killer that people remember uh is in that same vein as the Zodiac Killer, who, again, fundamentally speaking, got away with it. We don't know who the Zodiac was. So that, that goes right back to the John Ramsey thing. You know, why is this so popular? Why does anyone care about this killer kid who got murdered? Because we never, we don't know who really murdered this kid. Well, PBS seems to think they know who it is now. But at the time, you know, we didn't know who really got this kid. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the others... I mean, you know, people know the names of, you know, Bundy and Gein, but, uh, I mean, the near contemporary of Jack the Ripper was H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, who very few people know about, despite mm-hmm. being the first, like, like, really kind of documented multiple murderer, as it was called, now we refer to them as serial killers, in the United States, and to the point where, I mean, we still don't know his, an accurate count of how many people he killed. Uh, depending on the material you choose to believe and read through, it could be as many as two to three hundred. Wow. Wow. I don't subscribe to that line of thought, mind you, but he was a relatively prolific killer. Well, it, it, it kind of leads into my next question, because we, we're throwing names out here left and right of, of who these people are. Um, Ronnie Adams... What interests you more, okay? And I, I, I know this is rather morbid subject, but I mean, what interests you more, a good who done it or a good investigation into the actual person that did it, the reason behind it? What what seems to gravitate your interest? Oh wow. Um... A little bit of both, to be honest with you. It it, it... Wow, um, <laughs> the psychology behind the, behind why they did it is a little more interesting to me because it, it gets into um, that person's mind and helps me realize who they are. <laughs> I, I like a good I like a good mystery, but I guess I would have to go with um, I've read up on on different uh, different subjects like this. You know, as morbid as it may sound. But I do like to find out who that person is and why, what happened to them, or, or if anything happened to them, if they were just, or they just enjoyed that, uh-huh. you know, that crime, you know, um, killing or whatever. I guess, uh, I guess it was the the person who did it for me, not not the who done it. Okay, the 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 story behind why. 
they did what? they did they these did. atrocities. Yeah. Mark Radlich, hey, I think this is your field of expertise, man. What I mean, why are we? Why would we want to know why versus why can't we just say, okay, that person did it and we're done? What's what's the reason why we look at the why behind it? The wh- wow, why someone would yeah. murder or multiple murders? Do you have oh, a? <laughs> do you have uh, do you have any thoughts as to why is that something that we always have to delve into? Why can't we just move on? I don't know. I I don't know. I don't I don't know if everyone has that sort of intellectual curiosity. I think that's more individualistic. I'm I'm somebody who likes to dig, but I'm surrounded by people at work who um who I I think are have Dory's brain. And, you know, they just <laughs> it's just to get shit five minutes after it's happened. Um, so we could have the same guy come into jail, you know, 20 times in a row. And each time will be like, it's the first time, you know, yeah. um, but I'm interested why a person does a thing that he does. I've got that intellectual curiosity. I'm sure some of you guys do too. Uh, well, others don't, others are, others are perfectly, we had a guy, I'll just briefly, we had a guy who, um, he was probably persistently mentally ill, though we don't have a, enough records to say that one way or the other. But he was he was in our psych ward for the last 60 days, um, 60 to 70 days, and he was released two days ago. Um, to, he was released to the crisis stabilization unit, and they let him out in less than a day. He immediately went home and beat the shit out of his pregnant girlfriend and two of her roommates. Jeez. And when they ran to the neighbor's house, he beat the shit out of them there, too, until he was finally arrested. Again, this was, this happened yesterday. He was let out two days, two days prior to that. And to a lot of the people that I worked with, no one bothered to ask, why would, what would possess him to do that? You know, what drove him to this? It's not even, it's not even a function of the, of the journalism. Um, there were three or four different articles that missed crucial points of that entire story. Like, why did he get out of the CSU so quickly? Um, but no, but there was that. There was nobody asked why he beat this girl. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. You know, the focus was the focus was just on what a violent asshole, and that's it. And people just moved on. So I think it, I think it's very situational, and I think it's very individualized. I don't know if I can give you. The kind of general answer I did before. No, that's a, that's a good answer. Man. Um, I mean, what's from hell more obviously dives into why this whole atrocity occurred. You know, before, uh, well, I'd say probably prior to me reading this book and and coming to an understanding of what the movie represented. Also, I I knew Jack the Ripper was a thing. I had no clue about the whole conspiracy thing. I had no clue about. Uh, as to why these things were done, it never occurred to me to really get into it. Now, that is partly because I, I didn't have much of an interest, but I can tell you that you know, nowadays when something like this occurs, or you know, any tragedy that occurs, uh, myself, I'm asking why did this happen. As anybody else who'd be touched by that tragedy was probably doing the same thing, and I think that of course leads to uh, a lot of speculative uh, things that occur after a tragedy happens. Um, 
But uh, one of the quotes here for Moore uh, in regards to this book, he, he states that the greater part of any murder is the field of theory, fascination and hysteria that is engendered, that, that, it, in, that it is engendered. A, a black <laughs> – I'm going to try and say this. Alan Moore would sound so great doing this right now. A black diaspora of our tireless, sinister enthusiasm. Jack mirrors our hysterias. Faceless, he is the receptacle of each new social panic. Um, and when we look into why these things are done, we start to look at everybody else around us. At least that's what I – I mean, I don't know. I could be living next door to a murderer right now, and trust me, I'm watching uh, even in the back of my mind or just going outside and enjoying a, uh, a drink at the picnic table in our front yard. I see the next-door neighbor's. I see anything fishy, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm cataloging that. I'm like, okay, you know, what's going on here? Uh, and it's because of stuff like this that has occurred in our history and in our times today that we've become absolutely, <clears throat> at least I have, I've become critical of just about everybody. I don't know if that's just because I've grown up or what, but I, I watch everybody with a weary eye because of all this crazy stuff that's going on. Um, okay. Let's go ahead and we'll move on here. Uh, next question. Uh, let me see. I'm going to get back to my questions here. Um, all right. Uh, well, I, well, actually, let me just go ahead and move to Benjamin. Benjamin, you've got some things I know to say about this particular novel. Please have at it, sir. Um, not sure where I, I'm looking at, at notes that I wrote earlier. I'm trying to see where I can uh, jump in here. Um, as far as, you know, the, the differences between, you know, the why and, and the what and, and the details and, and the mystery versus, you know, just, uh, finding out, you know, just knowing up front, um, yeah. it kind of does, uh, more kind of does an interesting thing here where, um, and this is why I keep coming back to the fact that, like, you know, From Hell as it exists in, in graphic novel form is is absolutely a horror story because um, Moore is not concerned with the mystery of who Jack the Ripper is. Uh, Moore tells you up front who Jack the Ripper is. That's not the point of, his, of the story that he's telling. Um, for him to assert you know, in such detail, something that was never actually discovered and then basically putting the audience into the scene of the murders as they happen is kind of inherently terrifying. Um, you know, you contrast that with the movie where, which kind of presents itself more as, you know, a procedural whodunit and puts you in the, in Aberline's, uh, point of view, um, which, you know, you, you know, opinions may differ, but I think, you know, Averline, he, you know, he was factually the detective on the Ripper case, but for the purposes of, you know, telling an entertaining story, he's not a particularly, particularly interesting character. And they may, they try to do certain things in the movie to make him more interesting and it doesn't work. Um, so it's, it's trying, you know, the movie's trying to be more of a procedural, uh, you know, crime story 
which makes it a little less satisfying because there's less of a horrific element and more of a detective element. The problem with that is, like I said, the killer is never discovered, let alone brought to justice. So that kind of falls, you know, kind of, it's kind of empty where, you know, you're setting up a detective story that has no ending. Uh Um, As far as, you know, uh, you know, as painstakingly researched as, as From Hell was, uh, it definitely presents a hell of a case as as far as, you know, uh, Moore's theory of, you know, that William Gull was responsible for the murders. I know that supposedly that's also been debunked along with, you know, dozens of other Jack the Ripper theories for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, there's evidence to support it, and I'm sure there's evidence to support a lot of other wacky uh, conspiracy theories about who, who the Ripper was. Um, you know, as they say, you know, the, the truth of, the truth of what really happened and who was really responsible is probably pretty boring anyway. Um, you know, more just, uh, you know, first and foremost, I think he had a couple of ideas that he wanted, you know, that he saw that, uh, he could kind of tie together into this whole greater, uh, you know, uh, story that's kind of, you know, in the, in the culture, um, you know, a, you know, a hack writer would just kind of leave it at that and leave it with, you know, the case that he presented and, and the embellishment that he kind of did for the purposes of entertainment. More, Alan Moore kind of, you know, weaved this whole story around like actual facts mined from all these dozens of books on the subject. Um, and it's basically the, the it's pretty much the best example of, of a true crime novel that you'll ever you're probably ever going to find in comic book or in graphic novel form. I could agree with that. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Robert Winfrey, let me, let me bring you back in here. Uh, From hell is said to touch on many themes, including the role of women in Victorian society, uh, the collective neurosis of a culture, which produced a killer like the Ripper in the first place, the influence of the Ripper on the 20th century from the rise of the serial killer to sensationalism in the media, to shifts in attitudes about sexuality and the sexes, and the view of the present day from the, draw, from the dawning of the modern era, which one of those themes do you believe stood out to you the most from this particular story? Uh, to me, the two that stand out the most are the sensationalism of the media to the point where I believe there's a minor sub-story where one of the major London publications actually fabricates the first uh, letter from Jack the Ripper and names him such, all mm-hmm. in the name of... I mean, really, it, and considering that this book in and of itself was printed in uh, 1989, it's really the precursor of, you know, for want of a better phrase, uh, TMZ-style journalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true, man. It really is. And, and this, again, the sensationalism, the responsibility or irresponsibility of the media as it pertains to this and you know, turning, getting people to kind of frenzy and obsess over it. Uh, the other thing that comes through is, uh, you know, again, partially deliberately, uh, like within the actual text as opposed to subtext, is you know, the dawning of the 20th century, the move into the fully realized industrial era. And in that sense, uh, you know, and Morris talked about this himself, that Jack, uh, in that sense, is you know, it's predominantly literary. 
that he's able to work that message in. Really, Jack was kind of a fortunate member of uh, – he benefited from fortunate timing. Newspaper publications at that point in time were just starting to circulate further and further. Literacy rates were on the rise. The world was just kind of smaller, getting smaller at that point rather than bigger. And to cap it all off, you have violent murders. And, you know, again, like Mark mentioned, we're somewhat of a voyeuristic society. So what better to kind of capture people's attention and sell material than violent death? You know, it, it's a good seller. Can I um, and, piggyback on this? Sorry. Yeah, go I'll, I'll wait till you're done. I want to, but, I, but I do want to piggyback on something that you're saying. Uh, the last thing, that was the other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, something like that. I mean, look, serial killers are not new. Uh, we have this slight misconception based around inaccurate information that, you know, Jack's one of the first documented ones. Again, I mentioned H.H. H. Holmes a little bit ago. One of the first documented in the 1900s, if not the first, I have to double check some of my facts on that. But the reality is serial killers did not spring into existence in 1890 or 1880. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the internal combination of biology, sociology, and societal influences that go into making serial killers have always existed. We just finally were in a, in a place where we could tell everyone about them there was a dense enough population that they would be – that would help – that in some ways helps foster that. If nothing else, you're just going to increase your chances of running into one numerically when there's as many people crowded together as there are in a major city like London, New York, Los Angeles, et cetera. And he just – again, it was inevitable, and it just kind of happened to – even around that time, it was somewhat inevitable. And he just – that's just kind of where Jack falls – the fact that Moore is able to spin that into a somewhat interesting narrative about you know, moving forward as a society at that point is a credit to him as a writer. Anyway, Mark, you had something you wanted to piggyback on? Just that I think where I run counter to you guys, or especially your last statement um, as far as what interests you the most, is the fact that you know, sensationalism in media and, and media sort of um, dusting up people's uh, emotions and pointing them in a certain direction is not new. It didn't, and it didn't come about in the 1800s. It's older than that. Um, I mean, I, I you go back and you read some of these history books about um, U.S. elections starting starting with Washington, certainly, definitely, certainly thereafter. There, there were magazines and pamphlets and um, newspapers of the day that were just as bad. Um, and I and I think this is why I sort of lose interest in this topic because you know the more sort of focuses on like look where we've come, but I think had there been 24-hour cable news in 1790, you'd have seen the same shit. I, I you know I think there are certain patterns in human behavior and patterns in history that sort of keep bringing us to the same places. Um, so the idea that, oh, look, sensational headlines, you know, lowbrow stuff to attract people and ultimately to sell papers, you're always going to come rounding back to the same place. You're going you're gonna to find the, uh, the low-hanging fruit to put out there for people to gobble up uh, so that you can make money. 
And I don't, you know, and the fact that more focus is on it, I'm like, okay, and the rain is wet too, and what else you got? <laughs> I think, and, I, and I'm not putting down Robert, if, he, if that's what you found interesting, then that's what you found interesting. I, I just don't. Um, I think the the element of women in that society, now that's something that has changed. That's dynamic. Um, women are in a far different place now than, you know, than they were 100 years ago. And so to sort of study that and how it evolves and develops, I think, is a more interesting thing. Um, and it's, it's one of the few things about what – I'm going to focus on the movie here. It was one of the few things about what, what little of that was represented in the movie. Um, I was able to pluck out and go, well, at least that's interesting. But the media stuff I have no use for. That, to me, like I said, rain is wet. Uh-huh. Benjamin, did you get uh... – did you have a, a favorite theme that came through in this particular book? Yeah, it, it uh, like like Robert, uh, the Ripper is kind of like this harbinger of the 20th century. Kind of, it, it was interesting to me, and it certainly was interesting to Alan Moore because he keeps coming back to it. It's pretty much the central theme of of the the entire story. Um, he pretty much dedicates an entire early chapter of the book to the idea of it. And then goes to great lengths to connect a lot of dots. You know, as a factual account, those dots may seem like a bit of a stretch. Um, as a form of like narrative foreshadowing, uh, you know, especially in in terms of like a horror story, it can be used to pretty terrifying effect. And I think it was. Um, you know, I was pretty impressed by with how relevant a lot of the themes of the book still are. Uh, more is satirizing of the 20th century and beyond he actually he obviously had the benefit of him as a writer being a lot closer to the 20th century than the citizens terrorized by the ripper were mm-hmm. uh, but you know satire works for a reason it's usually because there's th- there's something there that begs to be criticized in some way um there's still a lot of things from that time in or out of the context of the murders that we're still struggling with today even though the 20th century is, you know, 16 years gone and counting. Uh, you know, whether that means from hell is prophetic or just that these, like Mark was saying, these are things that are kind of inherent to human beings that existed long before, you know, that period in time and will continue to exist long after. I guess, you know, it's up to your, you know, your interpretation. Um, it's not easy to draw a point A and a point B between two time periods over a century apart, then draw a line between them and say, at the same time, this is how far we've come, and also, this is how far we haven't come. It's true. So, it's yeah, that's a tremendous way of of looking at it. There, Ronnie Adams. Uh, I, I about asked you if you got a fart joke for us because I think you said that you were good for that. <laughs> now, what? The 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 the, uh, the commentary and the, and the the ideas that that, that these gentlemen I mean they're so intelligent and about all I'm good for right now is fart jokes and laughing uh, but I kill for a good fart joke right about now <laughs> I wish I had one I wish I had one to make man well you got we got okay Ronnie what did you you read this I know you read this a while back I mean what did you take from it when you back. first read this. What did you take from from hell? Um, a nosebleed and a headache. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> there's there's so many things that that, uh, that more touches on. I, uh, one of them is the the role of, of women in, in in this society versus you know that and and the parallel and honestly the parallel between how how far we come and how far we haven't come uh, was also something that that came up uh, in my mind. Um, the psychology behind uh, why he's doing what he's doing and who who this character is, but uh, what was you know thinking about it and, and, and doing a little bit of research on it, it's it, it the oh I don't know it's just it's one of those heavy heavy books that uh, it just brings up so many questions at the time and, and so many questions when you think about it it's it's almost too much for me to to uh, to comprehend it at times. Um, but the the most interesting now is is when you you know you were talking about and you were discussing themes you know for the show uh, was uh, who cared about these women nobody really I mean the cops didn't the people you know didn't but they were being murdered in the streets and and it really showed you know um, not only the the role of women in the society but the the role of women in this particular um, uh, class of women. When I mean, you know, um, I guess you could say the, in the in the almost caste system that they have in in, in this time period, um, they were poor. <laughs> uh, they were women of the night, and nobody really cared about them as human beings, or or with families, or or with any kind of thoughts, dreams, hopes, or whatever. They were just prostitutes. They were just women that were being slaughtered on the streets, and, and it, it took somebody to actually figure out. That these are people, and we have to figure out what's going on. So it was kind of sad in that in that uh, that respect of did anybody really care about these people enough to really buckle down and find out who this guy was? Yeah, I totally want to figure out that those prostitutes are people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you kind of wonder. It makes me wonder, like, Hashtag you know, if it wasn't lives matter. <laughs> oh no. Robert Winfrey oh, with Robert. the singer. Oh. Nice. That's so far, just sir, but it'll do. <laughs> um, you know, it kind of makes you wonder if it wasn't for the media and its sensationalism of this particular, uh, of this particular horrific crime, these these crimes that were going on, would it have been something that people paid attention to? Of course, people were frightened to go out. But, I mean, if you didn't have the paper sitting there telling you, hey, there's a murderer out there on the streets, you do not want to go out there. I'm sure word of mouth travels fast, but when the media gets a hold of something and turns it up to volume 11, hysteria takes over. Uh, and then the, the, the pressure uh, of trying to name a suspect, that was one of the things that came through here is like, hey, we got to give this guy a name. Uh, and we got to find this person. We got to find out who it is. You never know. They they could have easily swept, swept this under the rug if it wasn't for the fact that there was such pressure to figure out who exactly was behind all this. And I, I, I say pressure. That probably wasn't all of it. I'm sure some people had the sense of duty and, and good to bring a person like this to justice, such as our good inspector tried to do. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, I, I want to go ahead. I know, I know you guys are not into politics. And when you say a line like, oh, you know, something starts out as simple, then the media gets a hold of it, and then people get into a sudden panic. I'm sitting here now, like, 
having almost having a seizure with how with how many examples of that are going on right now. Right but now. But that's not I'm to myself. I'm just like <laughs> the truth. Well, I mean, okay, I, okay. I see it. Um, the the we'll go to something completely uh, opposite of politics. The people dressed as clowns. <laughs> Has anybody really? Has anybody really? And if you don't know it, there are news stories and people are sharing on Facebook about about random people dressing up as clowns and creeping around people's houses and in bushes. Has anybody really seen these people dressing as clowns? No, but you hear about it on the news. You hear about it on Facebook. You hear about it on uh, on all these social media outlets and all these media outlets that you're afraid. I mean, like I, I've said myself, you know, joke, you know, half joking. Um, you know, with all these people running around in clown costumes, it's no wonder that, you know, my family wonders why I want to get concealed carry because I'm terrified of clowns. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> uh, but that thing, that's something that's completely controllable and it's, it's a ridiculous fear. But because it's being so overblown, I'm like looking him out my back door saying, there's going be a freaking clown out there. You know, it's kind of <laughs> deal. I mean, but, has anybody, you know, really seen them? Has anybody been arrested for, for said, you know, crime or whatever? Crime. I can bring that back home. I can bring that back to the subject if anybody's heard of this before. Um, this was probably a year or so ago, but apparently there was one of those clown stories in Alan Moore's hometown of, of Northampton in England, and a lot of people like swore up and down that it was him. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I was unconvinced was because, because you know, it was not a clown with a gigantic beard, so that was going to say, man. But, Alan yeah. Moore, dressed up as a clown. Yeah, like, everybody, everybody just has this, you know, the, everybody just has this mythic, you know, outlook or, or opinion of Alan Moore that he's just this gigantic damn weirdo that will do anything that, you know, you pick the weirdest thing, you, the weirdest story you can, you can find. And, and, you know, that's probably him. And if you've ever actually heard him talk before, he's actually fairly down to earth. Uh, but I guess that makes for boring, you know, article, right? Oh yeah. We, we, we can't, we can't have any fun at his expense. I mean, for crying out loud. I, no, I, I listened to some of the interviews that he actually conducted with, uh, man, I think it was a radio station. Oh, it was a while back. He was showing some Swamp Thing stuff when he was doing Swamp Thing. So that's how old that was. And uh, the guy was, honest, honest to goodness, he seems like a, an, an actual person. <laughs> Even though he's looked deep into my soul from the set of my, com- you know, from my computer screen, he's looked into my soul like 20 times because of those pictures I keep coming across. He's a, you know, he seems like a decent dude. The, uh, the myth of him has kind of gotten bigger than than the actual guy. What he actually is, yeah, that's yeah. that's that's a fair assessment. All right, we'll we'll go. Mark Radlich, are you ready to take us to the movie, sir? No. No. <laughs> Blame you. Damn you, Hollywood. Oh, God. Damn you, a lot of people. But I suppose I should, since that's the whole point of this podcast, was to compare the book to the the movie. I'm much more enjoying your guys' conversation about the the book and contributing where I can. Um, Too bad. (laughs) Too bad. All right. Well, um, so from hell, the movie... 
features an absent, an absent swilling dandy named Johnny Depp, um, and uh, and, and, Ian, and Ian Holm, who you may remember as old Frodo from uh, Bilbo, you know, old uh, Bilbo from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I don't remember who the girl is. Who cares? In any case, Heather Graham, um, Heather Graham, and her terrifying eyes. You're a woman, you, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the, I'm not even going to look at Wikipedia on this. It's just here, here's the plot, basically. Um, mur- murders be happening, prostitutes be dropping, um, a gang of people um, <laughs> drag the prince out of his home um, and drag his pretty wife uh, out of the home as well. The, the wife ends up being lobotomized and put in the insane asylum. I don't think we ever see the prince again. Um uh, meanwhile, uh, back in the back in old Whitechapel, they drag uh, Johnny Depp out of an opium bar and say, "Clean up, dude. We need you to solve this murder." See, eventually he figures out that uh, it's Ian Holm who plays. What's the guy's name again? Gull. Yeah, Sir William Gull. He figures out it's Sir William Gull, um, who is a Mason, um, and he's. Uh, Part of it is he's doing it on behalf of the queen. Part of it is he's doing it um, because there can be only one and he wants everyone's Highlander power. Uh, that was what I got out of the movie. <laughs> wow. Ironically <laughs> enough, this would not be the worst Highlander movie. <laughs> not even <laughs> Um. Uh, uh, there's a trolley, there's a, uh, a tro- not a trolley, there's a, a horse and buggy chase uh, Ooh, man, that um, guy gets messed up on that one horse, horse and buggy. Yeah, really Jeez. Uh, eventually, um, they, he gets the law on his side. Um, Gull uh, ends up being put in an asylum suit and being lobotomized uh, after he is tried by the Masons. And he tells the Masons, I'm better than you. And they say, well, that's fine. We're going to lobotomize you anyway. Um, meanwhile... Heather Graham has taken off with the uh, with the baby of the prince, who is, she is living in a cottage, and Johnny Depp dies in an opium bar. That's the movie, folks. Um, this <laughs> instead. So one of the major differences between the book and the movie is the book goes out of its way, as you guys said before, to not be a whodunit. It's upfront who the who Jack the Ripper is. And so that allows you to sort of focus on these other things. Whereas this movie is you follow an absence willing dandy around London, uh, around uh, England as he tries to figure out who done it. And it's, you know, and then when he finally confronts them, Oh, and he's, he's hit over the head and went, and then we have a chase and Oh, and he's fallen in love with Heather Graham. And oh God, damn you, Hollywood. <laughs> this is yet another movie. Full. Just full of stupid cliches. I mean, I, I, I can't even say it rests on the you know what's good about it is that it rests on the performances of the actors. Everyone reading their lines in this thing for the most part, like they're at, they're at gunpoint. It's dreary, and you know as far as whodunits go, it's like you know if you pay any close attention to what's happening, or if you've read the damn book. 
you know exactly who you know who done it, and there's no tension. So, Robert, you want to? I don't have a whole lot to add. Is it, we really like? I, I wish I'd, I I said, oh, from hell, sure, that leads right into Halloween, you know, right into scary stuff. That'll be great. And I had no idea what exactly I was getting into. Or we would have, we should have done this one first, uh, so as <laughs> not to end with such a shitty story. Um, but you want to talk about the movie? What, what, what are some of your thoughts? Um, yeah, when the best performance from your movie isn't actually Ian Holm chewing scenery, but from the man who would become Hagrid quoting Shakespeare, you have failed miserably on at least two fundamental levels. (laughs) This, I I mentioned this on Facebook, kind of my own thought to myself that I subsequently posted on the internet because that's what everyone does. This movie has a fundamental lack of understanding about the source material. Now, source material is not this, you know, carved in stone, finger of God, sacrosanct thing. You can monkey with it. You can change things. You can change perspectives. And that's all fine and dandy as long as you understand the material that you are changing so that you don't do a complete 180 from what it's supposed to be. In fact, I mean, you know, the best adaptations do make an appropriate amount of changes because the mediums are different. There have to be changes. I mean, Jurassic Park, for example. The book and the movie are two very different experiences. They're both very, very good. But one is, you know, like the other in base theme and name only. And no one cares because, again, they're both great. Because they under, you know, the adaptation of Jurassic Park understood the material that it was translating into the new medium and made the appropriate adjustments. Here, the fact that they take what's supposed to be a borderline metaphysical character study and turn it into a really crappy whodunit is a bad decision. Hiring Johnny Depp is usually a bad decision. In this instance... <laughs> In this instance, hiring him and then having him play, I mean, more describes him as an absent, absent, swilling dandy. I think Ben was right on the money when he's, uh, when he's you know, an even weaker version of Will Graham. Uh, we're going to throw out the phony psychic angle and we're going to give Johnny Depp real magic powers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was awful. And you took everything about the book that made it interesting, that made it, you know, relevant, for want of a better phrase. You threw it out the window, and you made a really crappy pseudo-mystery that no one looks like they wanted to be there for. I guess here's my question. Um, I will give it to um, Jesse or Ronnie or Ben, whoever has an idea as to what the answer to this might be of all the, of all the things that could have been that Hollywood could have paid money for to adapt to the silver screen. What possessed them to think this was a good idea and more to the point. Well, I, I, well, we know the answer to my next question. My next question, you know, and, and Robert really, really said it is half the time they want to adapt something. You have studio executives uh, who don't really understand the material and while you might have directors and screenwriters who do understand the material they are usually monkeyed with uh, to to a large degree and told, you know, in given notes saying, no, 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 take this out, put this in, 
get you know get, get you know, Johnny Depp an opium addiction for some odd reason. Um, you know, do this, do that, and give it a happy ending. I'm actually surprised. I'm and you're not dealing I, with I, a couple of talented directors here. The Hughes brothers do not exactly have a deep, uh, varied, and respected filmography behind them. Hey, I liked a few of the Hughes brothers movies. The, By all means, um, but, go ahead and enjoy I, them. I'm just saying, when the best, they, when arguably <laughs> the best film on your resume is the Book of Eli, there's a problem. Uh, <laughs> go back to my initial question, just, just round, rounding back to this. Um, you know, like I said, this thing was chock full of Hollywood notes and cliches, and I know why they do that. So I'm just gonna let. I'm, I'm not even gonna bother having a discussion about it. We'll be here. We'll, we, you can listen to Damn You Hollywood for me and you know, Rob Winfrey discuss that sort of thing. But I do. But I mean, as as much, I, I don't understand how how a Hollywood executive came to the conclusion that this book, as more wrote it, in any adaptive form, would have brought people to the movies. It's, it's Jack the Ripper, man. It's it's got to be Jack the Ripper. I have not done any bit of research as to why in the world they chose to adapt this at that time, but that's the only thing I could think of. Is like, well, we got to find a good Jack the Ripper story. Okay, well, See? who who's who's wrote a good Jack the Ripper story? I heard Alan Moore did. See, here's the, here's the thing about that. Like, <laughs> I can see. Okay, I can see adapting. You know, a Jack the Ripper story. I can't for the life of me. I'm with Mark. I can't for the life of me understand why somebody would try to adapt this, this Jack one. the Ripper story. This book is really messed up. Like this book describes, you know, this book goes into very graphic detail, graphic detail that you know you would never be able to get away with in your standard R-rated Hollywood movie about all of these brutal, like increasingly more brutal killings and that's kind of, you know, that's not to say that they're, you know, that they're gratuitous in the book. At least I don't think so. I think they serve the purpose of, you know, like ad- advancing the story uh, in, in the way that it does. Because mm-hmm. once again, it's a horror story and you are meant to be horrified by the events that are taking place and the increasing brutality of it. But there's some things that you can't do in an R-rated, you know, in your standard R-rated Hollywood movie. And if you have to take out those elements from this book, they are very important elements in the story. You take those out and you're left with, you know, what we got, which was something very empty and very superficial that kind of glossed over a lot of those things to make way for Johnny Depp's wacky visions. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't understand why this one. I mean, really, there is a lot of material out there in regards to uh, the killings that happened, uh, and and theories behind it. Who did what? Who did this? Um, yeah, I couldn't even pause it as to why they would choose this. I mean, Alan Moore. What were we, what were we talking here? This came out in two thousand one. Yeah, the, the movie, yes. Okay, the movie came uh, out in 2001. Is this this isn't his first adaptation, is it? Did they did they adapt any uh, other Alan Moore stuff prior to this? Uh, I can't think of any prior to it. 
I'll, I'll go to the internet. You guys can go ahead and talk. I'll find out. Probably so not. Go ahead, Ben. I'm sorry. No, I, I don't. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't think so. And and also, um, this movie is also a very very good argument uh, in Alan Moore's favor as to why he doesn't want his name on on any adaptations of his work. And will actively not consent to a- any adaptation of any work that he actually owns himself uh, anymore. Because this one, you know, th- this adaptation like built the coffin, and then League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I know we didn't, I didn't get a chance to be on that podcast. But if you're wondering my thoughts as to that movie, those that drove all the nails in. <laughs> and, that, and that's exactly at the point when Alan Moore decided, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, so here's a bit of trivia to kick around. So you figure Hollywood, you know, Hollywood plans things out much like a much like a TV executive. They have an idea of what movies are coming out when. They also know more or less what other move, what other studios are doing what. They, um, you know, they have an idea of what they think they can sell in what month, and they try to position things so that, you know, whatever they've invested their money in will win the weekend. So here's what From Hell had to compete with in the weekend that it came out in 2001. The Last Castle with Robert Redford, James Gandolfini, Mark Ruffalo, Steve Burton, and Delroy Lindo from DreamWorks, and Riding in Cars with Bullets. Riding in Cars with Boys, directed by Laverne and Shirley famed Penny Marshall, ah. and uh, starring Drew Barrymore, Steve Zahn, Brittany Murphy, the late Brittany Murphy, James Woods, Lorraine Bracco, Sarah Gilbert, and Vincent Pastore. Now, that was a week really that, crappy week for movies. Mm-hmm. Now, hang on. The week before that was Bandit, Corky Romano, and Iron Monkey. Corky <laughs> Romano. Jeez. Okay, this is just a bad month for movies. Whatever month this was in 2001 what? was not a good time to be a film fan. I got a bit of a song okay. for Bandit, by the way, but still. I'm pretty sure the month of October 2001 was taken over completely by Training Day, which came out October 5th. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had to have. Uh, um, the just to just to finish this up, the following week, August twenty, uh, sorry, October twenty ninth, right in time for Halloween, we had K Pax with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Spooky. Kevin Spacey and Jeff Bridges with Lance <laughs> on the line with Lance Bass, Joey Fatone, Emmanuel. We're somebody. just gonna stop you right there. <laughs> Lance Bass of, of, of was he in sync? It and was and movie, wasn't it? Well, that was Thirteen Ghosts, uh, starring Tony Shalhoub and Matthew Lillard. So uh, Thirteen oh, Ghosts was actually pretty good. I didn't mind that one. I forgot Tony Shalhoub was in that. Didn't see it. Not a bad movie. Uh, I mean, it's not quite as good as the original, but it's also a very different story from the original. But none of that matters because November second, Monsters Inc. came out and decimated everything. Oh yeah, probably won the year or at least a yeah. quarter. And it deserved to. Uh, no, what won the year was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, oh. followed by The Fellowship of the Ring. But Monsters Inc. Oh. came in third. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty stiff competition. Um, so anyway, uh, so I, 
we have what? How much time do we have left here? Um, we've got about 24 minutes left in plugs and thank yous and just uh, I'm just gonna go around. Um, Ronnie, what, what uh, burning desires do you have about this movie? Because I mean, I honestly, there's not a whole lot of film here to interpret. It's shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. It's a it's a hollow representation of a very of a very dense and interesting book. It's exactly the kind of Hollywood tripe that Robert Winfrey and I, well, Robert bangs his head on the desk and I tend to celebrate, but, um, but I know <laughs> shit when I see it, even if I celebrate it. So give me your, uh, I, and I, yeah, that's the, that's the summation of our podcast right there, guys, because you've never heard <laughs> our movie reviews. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm in complete agreement. Okay. The story behind this movie for me was um, I was a youth leader um, in my church at the time back in West Virginia, and one of the youth uh, wanted to go see this movie and not really have, have never having never read the book before and uh, uh, not really really knowing what it was about. I, I took a couple of them, you know, I went with them, a couple of them to the theater, and we instantly walked out after the first ten minutes. Uh, 15 minutes or whatever. Um, so that was my first exposure to this movie. When I went, finally watched it, um, and after reading reading the graphic novel, I was like, who in in their mind thought this was a good parallel to the book? Who in their right mind? And and you could you could smell Hollywood all over because they're like you know the 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 magic powers of Johnny Depp and. Um, and taking out some of the key elements of the book or just rewriting it completely. So this was not good. I, I completely agree. This was not good as a movie. And, and and generally, typically, I'm kind of a Johnny Depp fan. I know that uh, I'll get some groans on that one. But um, this was just, oh, this was terrible. And, and, and um, it almost, you know, made me see why, like you all said, like uh, like it was said, that Alan Moore was like, you know, I don't want my name anywhere near on anywhere near Hollywood when they they um, do stuff, and yep. uh, with uh, with my with my work. So this was just uh, it, it was kind of a boring movie too. It was indeed the first adaptation, by the way, uh, oh. according to Wikipedia here. So this was his first his first adaptation to the big screen. Ouch. Yeah. Um, Not a good sign. No, no, only, get only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah. Boy, did they ever make it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm Roughly crater here, size. We're, we're lambasting Hollywood for their shitty, um, for their shitty uh, adaptations of Alan Moore's stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you know, We've seen some really great adaptations of comic books, though. Look at Marvel Studios. Marvel Studios has done a really great job of reworking a lot of their classic stories into mo- into modern popcorn movies that, for the most part, people have enjoyed to the tune of billions of dollars. And then I thought, oh, God, what if Marvel had, uh, had adapted Alan Moore's stuff? How bad would that have been? Uh, well, Ooh. here's the thing. I mean, from hell... I mean, us four people right here on this podcast are probably the, you know, I now know three people that have read From Hell, okay? 
<laughs> that's about the extent of it. <laughs> you know, if yeah. Marvel, you know, you can't compare There's no way you could compare what Marvel could do with this property because if Marvel took care of this, there, there's no fan base behind this, I think, that would turn into billions of dollars or millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of millions or however you want to say it. But I, I just don't think it's a property that could be marketed – but to a select few, the the ones that enjoy horror and the ones that the ones that enjoy a good uh, serial killer um, flick, and that's not Marvel's bag. I, I just don't see that. Uh, I just don't see that as something that they would even touch. No way, I no hear how. The words coming out of your mouth, but I'm still picturing Robert Downey Jr. Uh, playing Johnny Depp's character. Oh, come on. Well, I, I mean, I can see that. <laughs> With I do not way. believe that's the way they would have gone with it. I mean, look, Marvel, for all their faults and successes as a film studio, at least have a fundamental understanding of their properties and what makes them successful. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons that probably my favorite Thor story arc is never actually going to get adapted because it's fundamentally a horror story and has entirely too much violence to draw in the average viewer. But I tend to, but you know, I enjoy it. It, let me let me throw in a quick question, and we'll go we'll go wherever you want to, Mark. I know I'm I'm hijacking a little bit here, but would any of you, Mark or Robert, if what do you think? Is there a good director that you think would have actually turned from hell into something decent to watch? Um, yes. Wes Craven. Wes Craven. Uh, Craven, when he was alive, could have done it. Well, he would have had a hard time doing it when he was dead. <laughs> well, Thanks for that follow-up, Mark. <laughs> it couldn't have been worse than what came out. Can't see me, but I'm raising my hand right now. <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. Ben? David Fincher. Yeah. Fincher. Because he, he basically did, because he made Zodiac. Which is Yeah, he, uh, between Zodiac and uh, Seven. Yeah, he made... Well, yeah, that's... That's a pretty good cross-section of, you know, whatever, if you want to talk about a modern equivalent. But if you're talking about, you know, if you're talking about A, uh, a story about a bizarre and gruesome serial killer, and B, a bizarre and gruesome serial killer that never got caught, there you go. Okay. Well, let me go ahead and give my thoughts on the movie here real quick. I watched a great... Uh, YouTube video. This guy tore this movie apart. I want to go ahead and give him props. If you guys get a chance, go out and check it out on YouTube. Guy's name's uh, Deus Deacon, and it's spelled weird, so good luck figuring it out. But just type in From Hell Reviews. I'm sure you'll figure it, figure it out. But anyway, one of my favorite parts that he brought to light was the part in this movie where the coroner gets sick because of what happened to these ladies. And one of the points that he made that, ra- that rang so true is the fact that this guy goes every day and cuts bodies up, opens them up, and does autopsies. And then for this movie <laughs> to make you believe that a coroner would get sick because of the injuries to this woman. Uh, and then we have our two, uh, our two inspectors or our two policemen there who have no problem with seeing what's going on. Uh, and, and are feeling no ill effects. Uh, just that right there exemplifies some of the worst parts of this movie. 
Um, you got your love interest that really didn't need to be there, but it had to be because you wanted to make it, uh, you know, you wanted to make it palpable for our audiences to actually try and enjoy and get interested in these characters. Um, movie cliches all over, but that was the one point I brought from this movie. I was like, uh, and rewatching it, or excuse me, when I watched it, uh, officially, I had unfortunately watched the review prior to going in and watching the actual movie, but I just couldn't help but chuckle uh, at how uh, how overtly ignorant that uh, that whole scene was. But um, who's next? Who wants to go next? And Not silence means nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing left to say about this movie. Yeah. I, so, one last thing. Okay. Because, you know, after I say that, then I've got one last thing. Of course. <laughs> Um, I, I kind of, you know, having, you know, reading a lot of the book and then seeing some of the movies side by side, like uh, I watched the first 15 minutes, like earlier this morning, and I could tell within the first 15 minutes that, you know, that this, that the movie missed the point entirely because the book in in the way the story's told, in the way the artwork reflects the story, in the way the artwork reflects the setting and the characters, you understand, you know, what this time period and what this location and, and what the you know, what the environment is all about. It's a very dirty, grimy, uh, you know, desperate sort of environment where there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of impoverished people and a lot of crime and a lot of desperation. The first 15 minutes of From Hell, the movie, looks like they're basically trying to base Whitechapel on the set of an episode of Doctor Who. (laughs) Uh, As much as I love Doctor Who, that's not a good idea. Like, the streets were really, you know, those were some of the cleanest streets in the ghetto that you will ever see. Those are some of the, you know... Some of the youngest, uh, prettiest Victorian era prostitutes you will ever see. Uh, you know, Averline in the book versus Averline in the movie, there's about 25 years difference, um, which is always kind of hard to tell because Johnny Depp doesn't age. Uh, and about 25 but, pounds as well. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, uh, they, you know, you had, I, I said at first, it was, it, it reminded me most of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in that you get some talented people uh, and you have all the resources to make something great and you make something maybe half great. At the time, I think I was being too generous to this movie. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula was at least half a good movie. This is, mm, you know, Ian Holm might have been a better William Gull slash Jack the Ripper if, uh, you know... He wasn't a hobbit in real life. Well, (laughs) well, there's that, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, And if they didn't spend so much time making him, you know, making him just the most cornball, like, slasher movie-looking villain uh, that they possibly could... Uh, he might have been good. Um, other than that, man, this was a waste of time. All right. 
And I think uh, let me um, let, let let's go ahead and just Jesse, if you'll uh, permit me, let's just wrap up the whole series here. Um, uh, and just so and I'll, I'll leave the discussion. I'll actually go to Jesse, and then we'll, we'll we'll go around, and then we'll we'll put a proper period on this whole thing. So Alan Mormont, what do you think, Jess? Do you think this was a success? Was this fun? Was this a slog? Was you know, are you cursing me as soon as we hang up this podcast? What are your thoughts here? <laughs> oh man, I I enjoy number one, I enjoy reading. Uh, if you throw a comic book in front of me or a graphic novel, whatever, and tell me, hey, read this, I'm gonna do it. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. The the good part about it is I get to discuss it with my friends on this podcast. And, and find out what everybody else thought. And the great thing about this is I get to hear from each and every one of you. Uh, some of the things that you guys have brought up are things that I never thought of. And, I, I, of course, this is a success. I think any time that, uh, you know, that some people get together and discuss a work of art, a work of literature, uh, you're going to learn something. Um, and one of the things that I learned from this whole month you know, we delve into Alan Moore, one of the most prolific writers of our time, and, and that's not joking. I mean, this guy has this guy has a mind to put pen to paper, and he will put something out there. There's no problem doing that. Um, he is a. I've had a better understanding of what these four works have tried to get across, and I think. Obviously, what you look at and when you look for the common theme amongst these four pieces of, of literature that we, we've covered um, is we get to see uh, humans being human. That is we – went, we already talked about that in episode one, the deconstruction of a superhero. A superhero is not uh, as super as you think. Um, they're human. And the humanity that is explored in Watchmen, V from V for Vendetta, in From Hell, uh, in I don't know, not a lesser extent in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but it's there, it's there, uh, it's it's overpowering the way that Alan Moore uh, interprets it and 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 displays it to us throughout throughout those pages. Uh, now. As for the fun part, comparing the the, the work to the movie, uh, you guys are the movie. You guys are the guys I go to to listen to for the movie reviews. Damn you, Hollywood! I uh, I have more of an appreciation of why Alan Moore said no more. <laughs> Take my name <laughs> off of that. Take my name off of that. I don't want to be associated with that. And there have been some true, very true adaptations. I mean, we look at Watchmen, which I think is Watchmen. I think is the most faithful to it. And there's a definitely an argument for V for Vendetta also. Uh, and I think we looked at two of some, two of the best and two of the worst uh, in this in this whole in this whole thing we did um, because League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was absolute rubbish. And so was, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, I think From Hell had its bright points when it comes to the movie itself. Um, I don't think it, I, I definitely don't look at it with a critical, as critical eye as some of you guys do, but it had its bright points. But my wife said she didn't like it, so I doubt we'll be watching it again anytime soon. So 
there you go. I enjoyed this. I think uh, I, I had a blast. Cause this is, Alan Moore is a great writer. As we've discovered on source material in the past, we have looked at his writings in the past. As a matter of fact, a year ago yesterday, I think it was, we talked about uh, uh, the Superman story. Uh, help me out here, Benjamin. What did I post? It was, uh, I think it was for, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Thank you very much. Exactly one year ago to, uh, yesterday. So anyway, uh, I had a blast. So I'll go ahead and I'll pitch it to Ronnie. You've been on here for all four casts, I think. I mean, what do you mm-hmm. pull away from this? Leave Alan Moore alone. <laughs> Leave him be. <laughs> You don't 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 try with this stuff. Just leave it alone. Uh, man can write a book, dude. He as as much as we joke around, as much as I joke around and call him weird and 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 crazy Alan Moore, uh, he is so talented. Um, Hollywood has failed him miserably uh, when it comes to writing his. Uh, uh, or adapting his his works to the screen, um, not so miserably in Watchmen because it was pretty true to his his original work. But uh, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen should be every copy should be burned <laughs> of the of the movie. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed uh, research, you know, re- rereading Watchmen and. and uh, I didn't reread from hell. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. <laughs> I I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> uh, it was no. I'm not. I'm, I wasn't gonna do myself like that again. I mean, more power to you guys if you did it. Shoot. I mean, I my hats off to you, but I wasn't gonna do that again. Um, I hear you. But um, it was. It, I mean, it's been a lot of fun, and 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 just being on here and talking to you guys. All right. Cool. Robert Winfrey? Sorry, I'm kind of multitasking. Uh, no, th- this was... Oh. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with this. Uh, you know, Moore's a very interesting writer. He clearly has a lot to say, but he clearly has a lot of thought that goes into it as well. Uh, he has a very... Uh, this might just be good luck on his part, or, but more likely discernment. He tends to find the right artist to work with for the job. And uh, that's something I hadn't really considered before we got into this one. I started kind of delving more into his work you know, around diff- you know, different titles in his work. I'd read a few of his things, but hadn't really thought about it critically a whole lot. And uh, you know, I agree that, you know, Moore's stories are very difficult to adapt and unless you're really, really good at it, you should probably just leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Well, Benjamin, you got some uh, you got some closing thoughts on Alan Moore month, man? Yeah. Um, you know, Alan Moore as a writer is one of one of my heroes, one of uh, the biggest influences. Uh, now that you guys have actually read, you know, have have read. Uh, some of his work. Um, I'm pretty sure I could show you, you know, I, I write and I draw comics myself. I, I'm, I'm sure I could show you anything that I've written or drawn in the past, you know, 15 years. And you probably be able to spot the Alan Moore influence pretty easily. That's how 
big of an influence he is on me as as a creator and, and what I do. Um, so, you know, I don't and I don't get to talk to uh, too much uh, about this sort of thing with with people. So, this you know, it's it's a, it was a good opportunity for me. First of all, fi- to finally finish From Hell, which I, you know, as dense as it is, I enjoy the hell out of that book. It's very good. It's also terrifying as shit in some parts. Um, it's one of those things like, you know, like Requiem for a Dream where I understand uh, how incredible it is, but I really don't think I could watch or read it more than, you know, more than once at a time over a period of several years. Uh-huh. Um, it just hits you that hard. Um, I wanted to answer one last, you know, one of the one of the questions that you you hadn't posed earlier that I did actually want to answer. Yeah, was um, you had mentioned a quote that that said uh, you know that called from hell the Citizen Kane of, of comics. Mm-hmm. And basically, and my thoughts about that is, I've heard it said before. I've uh, I've heard people that are not necessarily as into superhero books as, as, but but still enjoy comics as an art form will call you know from hell uh, Moore's best work and possibly the best work ever produced in the comic book medium, and they'll usually call it that over Watchmen, which most superhero fans would call the greatest wow. comic ever made. Yeah. Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. You know, Citizen Kane as a singular work of art is, is as well regarded as it is due in large part to, you know, its trailblazing and its contribution to its own genre in terms of, you know, different stylistic and narrative techniques it innovated, its scope, um, challenging conventions, and, and just how much different it was from a lot of what came before it. And under those criteria, you could probably make a better case for Watchmen being the Alan Moore work that's closer to, like, the comics equivalent of Citizen Kane. Uh, you know, regardless of your personal opinions as to its quality. Um, From Hell is up there. Uh, just in terms of how damn ambitious it was, which was basically, you know, weaving a fictional story into a very, very factual story in and out and back and forth and you know it it kind of hangs together pretty you know pretty seamlessly and uh a lot of things match up that you wouldn't expect it to a lot of things are fictionalized in the book but a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to be fictionalized uh, or a lot of things that you would expect to be fictionalized aren't which oh, wow. I guess you know I guess prove you know sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction is I guess how I'll you know how I'll close that all with. Yeah, I, I would love to get back into the uh, bibliography. Maybe the, the library will be kind enough to lend me a, the copy again. They'll just look at me and say, you can't have it for two months this time. I'll be like, okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd love to get back in that bibliography that you were talking about in the end of it, just to see, you know, what was true and what wasn't. So very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. I think that's it, Mark. What do you think, man? I think it's time uh, to bid a fond farewell. Thank you once again, gentlemen, for making this uh, happen. We could not have done it without you. I am uh, hard at work right now trying to think of another project to do in the near future. Our calendar is pretty packed for the year, but, uh, you know, there's always next year, and, you know, I'd like to do something like this again. No idea what or how we're going to do it, but I like the idea of comparing comics to movies. I just don't know quite where to uh, draw the next bit of um, – 
next bit of content from. So Frank Miller. Huh? There it is. <laughs> Frank Miller. Okay. Frank Miller month. There's, there there's material there. Robocop. Um, oh, so that, be, that being said, Jesse, uh, again, thank you for helming this thing and uh, take us out. All right. Well, uh, we're going into plugs now, I guess. Uh, hey, source material. I'll do a great uh, podcast on here. It is every Monday, and we talk about comics, storylines comic book uh, story arcs check it out there we're in the midst of he-man mini comic spectacular so check it out we just ended that there this past monday i talked about some of the great mini comics that came with he-man the he-man figures and uh, make sure to give that rattle broadcasting facebook page a like stay up on top of all the great podcasts out there that we have to offer Uh, and uh, you can follow me at stiznarkey on twitter uh, and I think that I'm just going to cut it right short there for me and my plugs there. Uh, Ronnie, you want to go next, man? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on a, a podcast called Screaming Boy Podcast. Uh, it's more of a nerd culture kind of podcast where we talk about movies, TV, uh, music, comic books, um, <clears throat> uh, tech, anything that you know really interests us at that time uh, here tomorrow we're going to be releasing our Indiana Jones uh, Screaming Boy and the Raiders of the Lost Podcast of Doom episode <laughs> and I didn't name it uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun uh, it was me uh, it was myself, it was Jesse and Adam my co-host uh, we talked about you know all things Indiana Jones while we you know enjoy the character and, uh, and we've got a, a ton of other stuff on there you know, Pokemon Go uh, CM Punk and his disastrous debut on uh, on UFC, uh, the hand grenade, uh, the phone turned hand grenade, uh, Samsung Note Seven. Um, so check us out. Um, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, and the Radulation Broadcasting Network, and uh, Screaming uh, Boy PR on Twitter, Screaming Boy Podcast on Instagram, and www.screamingboy.com. All right, awesome. Robert Winfrey, sir. Uh, this Sunday, as with every Sunday, you can find me hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. It's a look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. It goes live at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. This week, we will be reviewing UFC Fight Night 96 and previewing UFC 204. Because believe it or not, Dan Henderson and Michael Bisbing are going to fight for the UFC middleweight title. And I want to flip my wrists. Ah. <laughs> uh, also, you can find me most Tuesdays reviewing movies with Mark Radlich on Damn You Hollywood. Uh, last week, a couple of days ago, we reviewed the Magnificent Seven remake. Yeah, it's a movie. This coming Tuesday, we'll be reviewing uh, Mark Wahlberg's latest set piece, uh, Deepwater Horizon. So you can tune in for that. Uh, This Saturday, I will be providing live coverage for UFC Fight Night 96 in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. So stop by. Say hello. I appreciate it. And uh, I think that's all I've got. My man, Benjamin J. Cologne, sir. Plug away. Yeah, I got plenty of plugs. Uh... As always, as ever, I write, draw, self-publish a comic book called Soul Exodus. You can find it online on my website, soulexo.com, on Facebook, facebook.com slash soulexo. 
uh, on Twitter at Soul Exo Comic. Uh, I I do Sketchbook Saturday. I do at least one sketch in my sketchbook every single Saturday, and I post it on Twitter and Facebook uh, for all to see. Um, I will continue to do that. I will have one coming up this week. Um, you can find, you can also purchase Soul Exodus digitally under drivethroughcomics.com if you're interested in digital copies of Volume 1 through 3 and my full-color one-shot of Soul Exodus called Wandering Star. You can find it at drivethroughcomics.com under Epic Team Productions or Soul Exodus. Check it out if you're interested in digital uh, downloads. I will be exhibiting at New York Comic Con next week. This time, next week, I will be well into New York Comic Con. I will probably be exhausted. Uh, my table is is uh, 1269 in the small press area of the Jacob Javits Center in New York City, October 6th through 9th. I plan on doing a lot of drawing. I will be releasing my price list for com- for commission work uh, at the convention, uh, possibly tomorrow, as early as tomorrow. Uh, I'm trying to make it affordable for everybody. I'm also trying to stay as busy as possible. Drawing is what I do. Drawing is what I love. Drawing is what I love to share with the world. I make friends through art, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to make some money through art. But... Uh, <laughs> Check out my Twitter page and the Soul Exo Facebook page for price lists for convention for convention sketches and convention commissions. Um, I'm going to put Robert Winfrey on the spot just a little bit here because um, Jesse mentioned earlier a little thing called uh, "Everyone Loves a Bad Guy" that uh, Robert has been known to host uh, at times. A little under a year ago, and this was immediately after Halloween, so I had to wait a year to suge- I suggested this at the time, and I had to wait a year for it. I suggested because Robert Winfrey uh, is also, like me, a gigantic Simpsons nerd. Uh, I suggested doing an episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy about Simpsons Halloween special villains. <laughs> Do you recall that, Robert? I do. I also recall that, you know, there's no con- there's no contest for number one. It's the Devil Flanders. Of course, but, you know, we can still make a I, I remember that, and I'm not sh- – I'm still in many ways un- uncertain about the future of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy uh, for a variety Fair of enough. reasons. But Fair enough. But if nothing else, you will certainly get a one-shot this October where we can, where we can talk about the greatness that is – that are certain episodes of the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Fair enough. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. Hope hope you're not upset with me. Nah, uh, not at all. I appreciate the reminder, actually. Cool. <laughs> um, last thing, uh, and one of the best things, uh, you know, Radlich and Broadcasting Network, thank you all for having me and allowing me to ramble about comics and sometimes movies and... Um, allowing me to draw things uh, that I enjoy very much. Uh, I do title card artwork for a little uh, podcast you may have heard of called Long Road to Ruin. Um, 
I will not only be doing artwork for, and this, I had to be reminded of this last week, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it, but I will not only be doing artwork for the upcoming uh, Silence of the Lambs episode, uh, hopefully, uh, this is still penciled in, I'm hopefully still going to be, uh, be a guest uh, on that episode, because that is something else that I am also a huge fan of, and anytime I get a chance to talk about uh the, any Hannibal Lecter movie. Well, I shouldn't say any Hannibal Lecter movie because Robert said that we're going to be talking about Hannibal Rising. Um, yeah, sorry <laughs> about that. Mark asked if it should be considered part of the Lecter canon, and since it's based on a book that was written by the same guy and made into a movie, I said yes. And then he said, okay, because we're going to do A Long Road to Ruin, and I wanted to know if this should be a one episode where we just do one show talking about three movies or if we're going to do two shows talking about two movies each, and I I just, I knew, I knew I should have asked why he wanted to know that first. <laughs> well, well, oh we'll, we'll try to keep, we'll try to keep it entertained, but I'll be on that, and then um, I'll be doing artwork for the impending uh, Harry Potter series, which um, I'm going to start coming up with ideas for that very soon. A uh, whole lot of drawing, but like I said, that's the, one of the things I love to do the most. So, uh, you know, it's always a good time when I get to have a pen in my hand and uh, and a paper underneath it. So, thanks awesome. again. Very cool. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Alan Moore Month, one of my favorite epic podcasts that I've had the opportunity to do here on the Rattelichen Broadcasting Network. We're going to send you out now. I want to thank the patriarch, Mark Radlich. I want to thank Screaming Boys, Ronnie Adams, the 411 Ground and Pound, Robert Winfrey, and I also want to thank Benjamin J. Cologne. Uh, you guys have made this a lot of fun. I'm ready to get out of here. No more Alan Moore. We've we got to at least cut it off for maybe about a month or so, and then maybe we could maybe ease ourselves back into it. Uh, that's it. Uh, can, I'm going to steal, I guess, try and steal what these, uh, what Mark always signs out with, and that is be well, be safe, behave. <gasps> Look at all these alternative comic book creators Alan Moore, Art Spiegelman, oh, Dan Klaus. I really identified with the girls in Ghost World. They made me feel like I wasn't so alone. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Do you know anyone who works at Batman? Because I really want to draw Batman. I'm awesome at utility belts. Check these out. This is where the Batman keeps his money, in case he has to take the bus. Mm-hmm. Alan Moore, you wrote my favorite issues of Radioactive Man. Oh, really? So you like that I made your favorite superhero a heroin-addicted jazz critic who's not radioactive? I don't read the words. I just like when he punches people. How do you make his costume stick so close to his muscles? <sighs> Mr. Moore, will you sign my DVD of Watchmen Babies? Which of the babies is your favorite? You see, what those bloody corporations do, they take your ideas and they suck them. Suck them like leeches until they've gotten every last drop of the marrow from your bones. Hey, teacup, why don't you chill out? Very well. <laughs>
Oh, little Lulu, I love you, Lou, just the same. Ah.